welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. Whether you work for government or industry, we're here to help you understand how the other side thinks. So if you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. This episode is brought to you by IB Supply. IBSupply.com is your one-stop source for timely delivery of best value products. As a preferred source of supply and an award-winning Ability One provider, IBSupply.com offers access to thousands of products with compliance filters for hassle-free procurement. With free shipping and next-day delivery options, IBSupply.com's quality service is unmatched. Shop IBSupply.com today. The topic for this episode is incentive contracts, which turns out to be a really big subject. So we've broken it down. Today, we're just going to talk about cost incentives. Here we go. So we have an episode about incentive contracts. Let's recap episode 44. FAR 16401 describes incentive contracts in general terms, and it says incentive contracts are appropriate when a firm fixed price contract is not appropriate and the required supplies or services can be acquired at lowered costs and in certain instances with improved delivery or technical performance by relating the amount of profit or fee payable under the contract to the contractor's performance. Lord, I hate it when you read. But I know. We, we had to get our FAR reference for the – and our FAR, our FAR box has been checked. But in other words, it's tough to know what it will cost for sure, right? So we, we don't want to overrun. So we, government, and we, industry, agree to share the upside and downside along the way. That's really what this comes down to. So you design your incentive contract to meet your acquisition objectives. And this is all about communication. you got to make sure government and contractor agree – that the incentive arrangement is appropriate to motivate the contractor to do what you want them to do that they might not otherwise do and to discourage the contractors from inefficiencies and waste. There's two basic categories of incentive contracts. There's fixed price incentive contracts and cost reimbursable incentive contracts. We're not going to talk about the differences here. We're going to talk specifically about the types of incentives. It's funny that the FAR actually says – since it is usually to the government's advantage, it says actually it's an interesting word. It actually says advantage because it's good to be king, I guess. It says for the contractor to assume substantial cost responsibility and an appropriate share of the cost risk, fixed price incentive contracts are preferred. So in other words, government says, yeah, we like these incentive things, but most of the time they're going to make sure they work out in our favor. So, <laughs> right. It still should be on a fixed price contract where the contractors bear the risk. There's actually a caution in the FAR as well. Incentives shouldn't be used lightly, and to make sure that they aren't used all willy-nilly, FAR 16401D requires a determination and finding signed by the head of the contracting activity to justify that the use of this type of contract, an incentive contract, is in the best interest of the government. So there is a mother may I involved before you're allowed to even use an incentive contract so that they don't get out of hand and cause all kinds of mess. And as we talk about, the reason that rules like this end up in the FAR is because somebody made a mess out of right. it. So that's why, this, that's why it's there now. I think a lot of somebody's made a mess of these. <laughs> so 16402-1 describes cost incentives. And I'm, again, I'm going to read a little more. 402-1A, most incentive contracts include only cost incentives, which take the form of a profit or fee adjustment formula and are intended to motivate the contractor to effectively manage costs. And here's a really important part. No incentive contract may provide for other incentives without also providing a cost incentive or constraint. In other words, you can't 
just use a performance incentive or a schedule incentive without also having a cost incentive. Because if you want better performance and don't also constrain the cost somehow, you will absolutely get better performance, even if it costs $10 billion. Same schedule. You want it faster, you can go faster if you throw enough money at it. So cost is always part of an incentive structure. And it can be, and Far actually says most, it can be the only incentive. Okay, so how does a cost incentive actually work? The way it's set up, the contract includes a target cost, which is what both sides agree the work should cost to complete, and a target profit or fee. Profit or fee is the same thing. I'm just going to say fee from now on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So if... During the performance of the contract, the contractor delivers what they're supposed to, and the actual cost equals exactly what we thought it was going to equal. If the actual cost equals the target cost, then you get the amount of fee that was agreed upon, the target fee. Which is pretty unlikely that it's going to come in exactly what we planned. <laughs> right. It's exactly why we're doing this incentive thing in the first place. Right. If the actual cost incurred is greater than the target, then there's a reduction in the target fee. And if the actual cost incurred is less than the target that we agreed on, then you get more of the profit or fee. So this is where you were saying before, you're sharing the upside, the downside. And as with any incentive, though, you're, you're squeezing a balloon. I mean, there's a, there's a finite amount of, of money involved with the contract, right? So when you push on one side, you're squeezing air out the other side. Yeah, this is where you need to beware the law of unintended consequences. You have to be aware that you are squeezing that balloon and the air is going to travel from one side to the other. It's really it's, – it's analogous to Newton's third law of motion. I'm going to get all sciencey here. Show no, off. This is easy. But for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So if you incentivize lower cost, what does focusing on that lower cost do? It causes a reaction on either performance or schedule. Or both. Or both. And it works the other way, too. If you incentivize performance or schedule, it's going to have an impact on cost. The reason I say beware of the law of unintended consequences is it's very difficult to think through all of the consequences, especially as the incentive structure gets more complicated. Even simple incentives can have unintended consequences. But complex incentives almost always miss a few unintended consequences that you don't figure out till much later. And that's a good point to bring up. When does all this incentive stuff occur in the acquisition and execution time zones? In, in the acquisition time zone, it's the market research zone. You need to understand, is this, is this incentivizable based on what we're trying to do? You've already decided on what your requirement is, but it doesn't even make sense to do this. And then during the RFP zone, it's a huge part because the contractors, the offerers are trying to tell the story and solve the problem and put the puzzle together by reading the, the incentive process in the RFP. And if, man, if they can't understand it, and I've been on both sides of this, one that I wrote that I thought everybody understood and one that we were, we were trying to create a proposal based on. And it, if it's not clear, it's just no fun. Yeah, hopefully industry and the government are talking about the structure of these incentives during the market research zone, during the draft RFP. And if they haven't gotten it clear yet that there's questions about it uh, after the RFP is released so that before proposals are submitted, everybody agrees on what those incentives are and how they're structured. Yeah, and, that, and that's why it's the, the communication theme is the overarching theme here is that talking about it during the market research zone, 
that's why I mentioned the headaches in the RFP zone. You've got to get ahead of this or it's, it, it's a time vampire and a resource vampire. And then in, during the execution time zones, this starts right at the beginning. The first, the kickoff of the program is the place where if you have a cost incentive or any incentive built into your contract, this is where you need to have a good conversation about it between government and industry and make sure everyone understands exactly what those words in the contract mean. Because then you move on to the second execution time zone, the performance zone, where the work has commenced and everyone's tracking how you're doing versus those incentives. So why are we talking about this today besides Rob asked? (laughs) There are actually two podcast listeners in addition to Rob, one on the government side, one on the industry side who specifically brought up this idea of incentive contracts and how they seem to be getting more popular, particularly in certain agencies and especially on larger contracts. So and I it, think this is normal. It's the cyclical nature of government contracting. Incentives may be gaining popularity right now, and they will gain popularity until a large visible program fails and everyone blames it on the incentive structure. And <laughs> yeah. then we'll flip the other way. And incentives will be incredibly unpopular until a large and visible program fails, and it's blamed on a lack of incentives. And you know, this goes back to when we first started contracting. We're interns at Wright Pad, and uh, one of my old mentors, John Meyer, said, ah, "Fixed price contracts are all the rage right now, but just wait ten years; we'll be doing cost type again." He <laughs> was a savant; didn't even know it. <laughs> he was just grumpy old dude. I loved him. <laughs> And incentivizing, particularly at cost, it capitalizes on the profit as a great motivator. I mean, if companies aren't making profit, they're not in business. But the sneaky part of that is that profit isn't the only motivator. Yes, yes, profitability drives the world. That's what capitalism is based on. That's what companies are in business for is to make a profit. But if you only focus on that, you're ignoring the fact that revenue also matters when you're considering cost incentives. Companies are driven by top line and bottom line. They're, they're driven by the amount of revenue and the amount of profit that are achieved each year. And if you have an incentive formula that gives, them, gives industry more profit for a lower overall cost, they may hit a point where expending more money and bringing more money in more through, more through the company is more important to them than a little more profit. Think about it. If a contractor has a $10 million contract and the incentive is to, to only expend $9 million to deliver it, and if they deliver that, they get an extra $100,000 in profit, what's more important, that $100,000 in profit? Or they could just spend $10 million and not get the extra profit but get an extra million dollars worth of revenue overall. And this, this is a really interesting concept because as a contracting officer, I never thought about this. And, and what you're really referring to is this it's, yeah, top line versus bottom line. What that means is there are companies that have revenue targets and they're driven by revenue targets. And that is how they operate on scale. Large businesses, public companies tend to work that way. I'm, I've, I'm learning. And then other companies are bottom line driven, meaning that it, it doesn't really matter what the, what the scale is so much as the profit. And, and so be careful what we incentivize here because you may be that, – that's one of the things I never thought of as a contracting officer is that – on a service contract, managing the, the incentive, can, you can be running sideways with a contractor because they're a service contractor. Their people is, is their product. They want to have more of those people. 
So if you're incentivizing them to have fewer people, you're not really incentivizing them. Yeah, and I'd say all companies are both revenue and profit-driven. It's not always one or another, but the focus may change depending on the circumstances of the time, right? So everything you said said makes sense. If you just look at it, like at some point, they may be more interested in more revenue than they are in more profit. That, yeah, that's a more elegant way to say it. Oh, another big picture, why is this so important thing, is incentive contracts are more work to manage after award. Unless it's a very, very simple incentive that's obvious to everyone, you're creating more work on the industry side trying to figure out how to maximize the incentive, and on the government side, trying to figure out how to calculate the incentives, it's more administration. Yeah, and we don't need more of that, just saying. So why specifically should the government care about cost incentives? In theory, cost incentive contracts motivate the contractor to meet the requirement of the contract at the lowest cost. Yeah, and used with care. Cost incentives can help programs to to deliver on their requirements within the budget. But you have to remember that industry is motivated to maximize the cost incentive, which may come at the expense of the other things you want, performance or schedule. That's why I say used with care. And we were just talking about how incentives can make contracts more complex to administer. Yeah, one example for that, if you have a cost incentive in your contract, any modification you make to that contract has to consider – the cost incentive. So you're rolling through the schedule and you're performing and you're headed towards a specific cost and then you decide to do more or less of something. We have to account for the performance at the time that you add that incentive and you have to roll that more or less into the structure that you created for those cost incentives. So you can screw up the whole idea of the incentive. You can screw up everything you were trying to achieve with the cost incentive if your modifications don't take into account the impact on the overall incentive structure. Yeah, not, not, not to scare the crap out of people, but, but <laughs> it, this is a really, it's a really good point because you think it will give you an example. If the, if the contractor is incentivized to reduce the cost per unit and we increase the number of units in a way that's, that's better for the contractor, I mean they can create more units and, the, and their scale increases – you just giving them more profit. Or if you increase the, the, the required production in a way that requires them to use another shift of people, now the per unit cost just went through the roof. And yeah. that's got to be negotiated. Yeah. Just, just like that, one thing. I just, I'd say it like if the contractor is headed towards an overrun or an underrun, then you make a change to the contract, they're likely going to try to either maximize the underrun to make more profit or to minimize the overrun at, through that mod. They're going to like throw some more stuff into the negotiations to try to get them back on track to maximize the incentive. You've got to pay attention to that, which I guess I'm already talking about. Why specifically should industry care about cost incentives? Well, you make more profit for meeting the objectives. Right. That's, that jumps right out there. I mean, you, have a, you have a lot of upside. Um, you, you also have – you can share in the downside, so you're kind of offsetting some of that that cost uh, risk. And the the thing is, that the share doesn't have to be even. Yeah, by the there's way. all kinds of formulas for how to calculate the the cost sharing arrangement. Sometimes the the sh- the share ratio is exactly the same on an overrun and an underrun. Sometimes 
that ratio is off a little bit, it's it can get really messy. So let's not get any deeper into that. We'll talk about that on another one. <laughs> now, beware, the government may be suspicious of this contract type because they don't have a lot of experience with it. And and they may feel outgunned. That's how I felt. Yeah, and there I were think, times I that think I, they are outgunned. I think industry is much better at understanding all the impacts, uh, the unintended consequences, or sometimes the intended consequences of these incentive arrangements. So I guess just consequences. You know, and the idea of w- when you squeeze the balloon, can you see the whole balloon? Yeah. And looking back, there were times I could see my part of it, but <laughs> I couldn't see. And if the, and if the contract or can see the whole balloon and you can't, then that's why you feel outgunned at negotiation. So that's, that's why this is a, this is a squirrely contract type to, to just don't just try it. Make sure you understand it. <laughs> squirrely contract type. The way I'd say that is industry has to look at balancing the, this achievement of the, the greatest incentive on, on, on a cost incentive arrangement. They have to balance that with actual customer satisfaction. So in the short term, if this is a one-and-done kind of contract, industry is going to look to deliver the minimum requirements that, that meet acceptable while maximizing their profit. So they're, they're going to maximize the incentive and don't do anything more than they absolutely have to. But that doesn't work if you have a continuing relationship with the customer. Or it may not work. It may work, may not. Or, or, if, you, or if you want a continuing relationship right. with the customer. You really have to look at customer satisfaction. And if delivering the minimum disappoints the customer, you, you may need to deliver a little more than the minimum and maybe not get quite as much on the incentive side in order to satisfy the customer enough that to give you a leg up for the next award. So there's some strategy here in looking at it. And then long-term... I think long-term, down the road, you're judged more on the quality and your performance of what you delivered than on your cost. And what I mean is people tend to forget overruns. They tend to forget what, what the actual calculation of the incentive was and what you made if they're happy with what you delivered. So it, 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 this goes all out the window. In, unless, unless your overrun was so devastating to them, if, if the overrun was so big that they had budget problems and had to steal money from other programs to finish your program, or if it got so bad that they eventually terminated or, or canceled your program because of the overruns, well, then, yeah, they're totally going to remember the cost side of it. But you always talk, talk about like the ATVs. You bought ATVs when you were at SOCOM. What the customer remembers is, did I get my ATVs on time to actually get to the war, or did I miss it? And did those ATVs actually work when, when, when I started using them, or did they break down? That's the kind of stuff they remember. If they ended up paying a little more for their ATVs than they meant to when they were delivered, as long as they got them pretty much when they needed them and they worked as expected, they tend to forget that there was a cost overrun. Does that make sense? Yeah, and then balancing this short, midterm, and long-term strategy, this is, this is a good topic to, to bring in other areas, but the cost incentive is a great example of that because you have the ability to maximize your incentive. And like you said, if you treat it like a short term that I'm going to do this one and done and you didn't impress the customer that much, it, you know, it's, it's a short-term win. And just, just know that, that cost incentives can be a really seductive way to get a short-term win that may not help you as much as you think <laughs> 
All right, let's summarize here. What, what, are, what are your key takeaways this time, Kevin? So the key one for me is, is these have to be objective. The metrics for costs have to be objective. Subjective ones like, well, we want this. is this a good cost? That, that, that's for award fee. Those are award fee contracts. Make sure this is objective. And communicate, communicate, communicate. Get involved in this process early during the market research on both sides. Getting these incentives involved in the acquisition planning and talking to industry. Do not do these alone. Make sure that you're involving both sides or you end up with a really, really complex and beautiful RFP that people don't understand. Because <laughs> I'm raising my hand because I did that. We had a re- we understood all the incentives, but man, there were so many questions during the RFP. It zone. didn't actually incentivize what you thought when the contractors <laughs> actually told you what the, what it said. Yeah. I- ironically, it incentivized a lot of amendment to the RFP. That's what it incentivized. <laughs> uh, and and be prepared to manage this after award. Uh, this is not a paper exercise. Make sure you do it right. Make sure you understand it. And the more effort you put in up front, the easier it will be to administer because it is objective. It's just it's numbers, right? Well, if yeah, you clearly, clearly very clearly understand, yeah, more clarity yeah. between industry and government, the easier it will be to manage after award. The less clarity, yeah. if you just do what you did, <laughs> the more mess you have afterwards. Yeah, my, it just doesn't get any better. My key takeaway is back to the law of unintended consequences. Don't let this wreck your program. Make sure you understand the big picture in crafting your cost incentive, or you will get exactly what you asked for. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to. I, I love your uh, your Newton's third law. Somebody on the team has to be able to see the whole balloon. Yeah. Or you when as you squeeze it, you're gonna run into problems. Yeah, that's. I guess that's the same thing as as me saying you'll get exactly what you asked for. You just have to understand what that is ahead of time. If you don't, then you're surprised when you get exactly what you asked for because you didn't think that's exactly what you asked for. Okay, now I'm rambling. Good times. I'll talk to you later, Kevin. All right, see you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. To get deeper into the topics that we discuss here, check out the free webinars at skywaywebinar.com or join the Contracting Officer Podcast Network Group on LinkedIn. As always, send your questions, comments, or complaints, or ideas for topics to me at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us.